Welcome to the Embracing You podcast with your host, Eric Pothen. We are all on our own unique journey to discovering ourselves. Each episode, I will help you navigate the journey within to reconnect with and discover the innate love you have for yourself. This podcast will cover topics from self-love to eating disorders and body image to mental health and to overall well-being. My goal is to help you honor and embrace yourself so you may live your most authentic life. Let's dive in. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Embracing You podcast. Today's episode is all about how to heal our relationship with food and our body. And on today's episode, we have a special guest with us, Kate Regan, and here is just a little bit about her. Kate Regan is a registered dietitian, content creator, and founder of Wholesome Chick Nutrition, a virtual group private practice based in Philadelphia. Her team utilizes a non-diet approach to help their clients ditch dieting and disordered eating for good so they can live a life of food freedom and body acceptance. They help humans around the world learn to eat for their health without dieting and reconnect with their bodies so that they feel like they are on the same team as their body rather than fighting against it. You all, this is an incredible conversation with Kate, and I am so excited to be able to share this with you all. So without further ado, let's dive in. Well, good morning, Kate. How are you doing today? I am doing well. My morning's off to a pretty good start. I have I have my coffee here and I'm excited to chat with you today. That's awesome. I know coffee is like a non-negotiable for me on a on a good way to start a day. So I have my coffee here as well. So thank you so much for being willing to uh, take some time out of your day to share your wisdom with our audiences. Um, so to start today's conversation off, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, maybe what you do for work and what inspired you to do the work that you do today. Sure. So I am 28 years old. I actually just had a birthday a few weeks ago, so newly 28. Um, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am originally from this area, so this is home base for me. Lots of friends and family in this area, which is nice. I went to the University of Delaware for my undergraduate education, and I actually started out as a fashion major there, funnily enough. And then... Halfway through college, I was like, this is not really what I want to do, Um, wasn't feeling super passionate about it. So I changed my major to nutrition and dietetics and then finished my degree in the next two years um, and then went on to do my dietetic internship at Virginia Tech, the Northern Virginia campus right outside of Washington, D.C. So got to do um, a lot of cool things during my internship. Um, with like food policy and a lot of things in DC, which was really fun and unique. Um, And then when COVID hit, I worked for a couple of years down in Virginia. And then when COVID hit, I moved home and started my business in my parents' home in downtown Pennsylvania. Um, And then it kind of took off pretty quickly. And within the first year and a half, I was able to grow my team, bring on another dietitian, which was really exciting. And now we are a virtual group private practice with three dietitians who work with clients all along the disordered eating spectrum from those who have, you know, a pretty healthy relationship with food and just want to work on health in a non-restrictive way 
all the way up to a diagnosable eating disorder. Um, you know, those who have anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorder, bulimia, things along those lines. So that is where we are today. And yeah, I love what I do. I, I love coming to work every day. It's, uh, it, I feel really lucky to be able to do it. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, as I was looking through your website and I was reading through your About Me, um, you had also mentioned on there that you have a history of living with disordered eating or an eating disorder. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just maybe telling us a little bit about that. And did you do you see that your own history of you know experiencing that influenced the direction you took with your current occupation today? Absolutely. So at the time when I switched my major from fashion to dietetics, I was under the impression that I was just super passionate about health and I was super passionate about nutrition and I wanted to help other people uh, feel the same way that I did about food. Looking back now, uh, you know, years later reflecting on that experience, I can now see that it was clearly coming from a disordered, unhealthy place which I think after talking to a lot of other dietitians um, is a similar experience of feeling passionate, quote unquote, about it, but really looking back and seeing it more as almost an obsession that wasn't very healthy. So that is when it kind of took a turn for me and I got even deeper into the nutrition field and deeper into learning about nutrition. And then... Um, Throughout my dietetic internship was really when I was doing most of my healing and recovery because I recognized that I can't help other people feel good about food if I don't feel good about food. So, and I see you nodding your head in agreement. Um, I'm sure you can relate, but I wanted to be in a really solid place with my own relationship with food so that I wasn't harming others. I wasn't, you know, giving biased advice or, you know, making other people think about food in a negative way. So to answer your other question, yes, I do feel as though my experience with disordered eating really, really puts me in a good place to help people who are struggling because I can relate on such a deep level. When people tell me the kinds of thoughts they're having about food, when they tell me the kinds of thoughts they're having about their body, not that everything is exactly the same, but I can relate in a similar way. Like, hey, I felt really, really negative and, you know, I felt I've had a really toxic relationship with food as well. So I know what you're going through and I'm here for you and you can tell me anything that's on your mind because I've probably thought a similar thing before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a couple things come to mind here is, you know, to your first point here, it really reminds me of the quote, like, you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. And so that really resonated. And that's what came through for me as you were describing. And I am in a very similar boat, right, where it's, I need to make sure that I am in a solid enough place to feel about food and my body and exercise and all of that. So I definitely really agree with you. Um, with regards to that point. Um, and then the second point being, and I think that is so key to any sort of the work that we do in this space of eating food and body image, because I think we've become, I don't know if more credible is the right word, but more relatable and whatnot that we truly can 
try our best to understand their experiences. And like you had mentioned too, which I think is really important is that, you know, we aren't going to have the same feelings that our clients are feeling. And I think honoring the fact that, yes, we can feel similarly, but I don't know exactly how you're feeling, but I can try to understand. And I have a pretty firm understanding of why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. Exactly. Yes. We always want, you know, in our practice, we always want our clients to feel as though we're, we're honoring their lived experience and we are providing a really safe space for them to share what's on their mind and what's on their heart, especially because I've had so many clients tell me that they feel like no one else in their life really understands what they're going through. So we're in that unique position to be like, we do, we understand what you're going through. So if they see us, you know, once a week, then that one hour is their true safe space to really get the support and feel seen and feel heard. And I think that's where the healing happens, right? Where when you're in that space where you truly do feel heard and you feel safe enough to talk about a lot of these deep and personal things, right? Where, you know, when I was living with my own eating disorder and I was entering into the place of recovery, I still didn't know how to talk about that with my family and friends. I never received any sort of formal treatment to help heal me from my eating disorder. Um, But it just, it really makes me curious to think about, you know, what would my own recovery have looked like if I would have had that safe space where I had someone to listen to that truly was able to understand my perspective and my human experience. I think about that all the time as well, because my recovery process sounds similar in that I didn't have any formal treatment. I did go to therapy towards the end of my healing process, I would say. I did go to therapy, but we weren't really talking so much about the food, which, you know, as we know, it's eating disorders are about the food, but it's not really about the food. So we were talking about, you know, related topics to self-esteem and, you know, why I might have been using those, those coping tools in a maladaptive way. But I completely agree with you in that, you know, the relationship that a client has with their clinician, I think, is the most important part of recovery, the most important part. Because if you are coming to your sessions and you're feeling like you have to put on a front, you can't be vulnerable, you can't be authentic, then the healing is only going to go so far. You're going to hit a wall. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So today's episode is really all about how to have a healthy relationship with food. Um, And I'm a true believer that awareness is key with any sort of personal work that we do on ourselves. So what are some common signs that an individual may have an unhealthy relationship with food? Great question. It's It's a really important question as well, because I think a lot of the things that I'm going to mention are normalized in society, but that doesn't mean that they are normal or healthy. So some of these things that I might say might surprise you. I would say, number one, if you are thinking about food for more than 15% of the day, not healthy. Of course, it's normal to be like, what am I going to have for lunch? Or I wonder what I'm going to cook for dinner or thinking about that amazing dinner you had at the Italian restaurant last night. There's a, a normal amount of thinking about food you have to do in a day. But if you are, if you feel as though thoughts about food or thoughts about body or thoughts about weight are taking up a large percentage of your day, that's a sign that you're in 
likely in an unhealthy place with food. Another thing that can point to an unhealthy relationship with food is if you are labeling foods as good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, and you're feeling a lot of shame or guilt when you're eating something you feel you shouldn't be eating. So if you are eating something that you think is quote unquote bad, and you are having feelings of guilt and shame after eating that thing, that's a sign that you have an unhealthy relationship with food. And then the last thing I would say is if you're engaging in any extreme behaviors around food, such as restriction, you are skipping meals, or you are cutting out calories, or you are um, cutting out carbohydrates or something like that, or if you are binging or emotionally eating frequently or secretively eating, all of these things are a sign that you have an unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the one thing that your second point, I feel like I really resonate with a lot. And it's something that I feel like I'm constantly, you know, correcting myself on as well. And really trying to, you know, whenever I'm engaging about food with, you know, peers or clients or anything like that is really trying to help not only myself, but them try to remove any sort of moral value when it comes to food, right? Where very much so, like you just mentioned, this is a healthy food versus an unhealthy food. This is good versus bad. It's like we get into that unhealthy paradox, I think, with food in the way that we think about it. And it's a lot of these things in the way that we talk about food that can lead us to creating that unhealthy relationship with it. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, the the concepts of intuitive eating too, right? Where it's, you know, that's a large part of intuitive eating is removing any sort of moral value from the way that you are labeling food, um, such as good versus bad, and really just trying to honor what your body is craving and not judging and just really trusting in that. So I really, I really, really love that second point um, that you had mentioned about, you know, that labeling of food, good versus bad or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. If you are trying to have a healthier relationship with food, changing the language that you use to talk about food, whether it's verbally in conversations with other people or internally with yourself is so significant and so important. So really trying to remain neutral in the way that you talk about food and focus more on your experience with the food rather than the label that you're giving to it right? How is this food making me feel? How is it feeling inside my body? Do I like the way that it tastes? Am I enjoying the mouthfeel? Do I want to eat this food again? Focus on that rather than, oh, this is a bad food. I shouldn't be eating this. Yeah. It's like coming back to that in-body experience as you are eating. I think that can be so powerful when we can really allow ourselves to be present and be in our own body and not in our mind as we are engaging in in eating food. Um, you know, you had just mentioned too, like having neutral language around food. What does that sound like? Great question. My One of my favorite exercises to do with clients is have them practice what I call the three T's. And this is not an original idea. I forget where I got the idea from. But instead of focusing on labeling the food as good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, focusing on the three T's, which are taste, temperature, and texture. 
this food tastes salty or sweet. This food tastes warm or cold. This food tastes crunchy or smooth. Because those kinds of descriptors have no moral value attached to them. You're not going to feel a different way about yourself if you're eating something that's crunchy versus smooth. You're just, ma- you're just making an observation about the food and you're staying more present rather than approaching that situation with judgment like you're talking about. You're staying very curious and very neutral. Yeah, I love that. Something that I've been trying to shift to with my own vocabulary instead of using those words is, you know, we're in the new year and everyone is starting up a new diet. And, you know, I feel like that it still can be triggering for me to like have that all around me. Um, But, you know, especially if people in my life are engaging, you know, in a diet or anything like that is to really shift language from like healthy to nutrient dense. I think for me, that shift has been really helpful for me in my own journey, especially because like, yes, this food can have more nutrients than the other, but that doesn't mean that if I want to eat something that's not as nutrient dense is bad for me, right? Quote unquote bad, right? And so I just think using that phrase nutrient dense, I feel like is a little more helpful for me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, you know, I kind of toe the line with that one because I think it depends on where the client is in their healing journey, because if it's very early on and you're telling them just switch healthy for nutritious, they might still be sending themselves the same message, right? If I'm eating something that's nutritious, I'm still a better person, right? But if you are further along in your healing journey and you have you know, a larger spectrum of descriptors to use about food, then I think nutritious or nutrient dense are totally fine and morally neutral. But it really depends on where that client is in their journey. 100%. And I love that you just brought up that point um, because that's so true, right? Where I feel like I'm very, in, I'm, I'm very much so in a grounded place in my own recovery. But so that works for me. And I think this relates to, you know, this entire conversation and whatnot too. But, you know, what works for me might not work for you. And I think it's really just re-ingraining in people's minds that it's not a one size fits all sort of deal when we enter into this space of talking about food and eating and body image and that it really is trial and error in figuring out what works best for you and maybe what doesn't and really honing in and learning how to craft those skills and make yourself an expert in those skills of what works best. Totally. Recovery is all about experimenting and exploring and trial and error, as you're saying. And I think you're, you're spot on in saying that, you know, certain language might work for someone and it might not work for someone else. Another phrase that I hear a lot from clients, you know, maybe they've, they've heard it on social media before, but they, uh, they find the phrase body nourishing and soul nourishing to talk about food helpful at times. So maybe this food is more nourishing to your body and this food is more nourishing to your soul, right? But I think also like we don't want to continue creating a dichotomy and a food can be both, right? Because all food technically provides the body with nutrition. All food is composed of carbohydrates and protein and fat. Do some foods have more vitamins and minerals and fiber? Sure, But all foods are still providing nutrition to your body. And I think that's a really important learning lesson in the recovery process. Mm, Yeah, I really like that. I haven't necessarily thought of that before. So I really love that point that you just brought up right there. 
Um, so we've just spent a little bit of time talking about, you know, what are some signs that you may have an unhealthy relationship with food, but I'm curious now to kind of enter into this part of the conversation. And I, I have a feeling I might know where this is going to go, but what do you think contributes to individuals having an unhealthy relationship with food? Uh, I could spend 24 hours talking about this. There is always a perfect storm of factors that contribute to an individual's relationship with food. I would say number one, society and what we would call diet culture. You might have heard that term before. You might have not. Eric, I'm sure you have. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, I'm not really sure what that is, it's basically a system of beliefs that equates the way that you eat with your moral value or status. Um, and it, it basically uh, demonizes certain ways of eating and elevates other ways of eating. So diet culture is everywhere. You see it on social media. You see it in TV shows and movies and magazines. It's, it's everywhere. It's in the weight loss ads you're seeing all over your social media platforms right now. So it always is, is right around the corner. So the way that society talks about food is problematic most of the time. Second thing is the environment that you grew up in. Your family's belief system or your caretaker's belief systems around food heavily influence your belief system. And then you will then carry that into your adulthood, most likely, if there is no intervention, you know, in adolescence or anything like that. So if your parents, if you grew up with parents or caretakers who were always dieting, who were always talking about their weight, who were commenting on your body, who were telling you that there are certain foods that you should and shouldn't eat, if they're calling certain foods junk food, then you are going to carry those beliefs into adulthood with you. So the way that your parents and caretakers talk about food and interact with food heavily influences your own relationship with food. And then the last thing I will mention is uh, psychological factors. So most people who struggle with disordered eating have co-occurring diagnoses such as anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, uh, trauma history. So if you have any of those, then you are at a higher risk for developing disordered eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you mentioning all three of those things because I, once again, I really don't think a lot of people, not enough people know that eating disorders are biopsychosocial disorders where it's a combination. It's not just one thing that leads to the development of it. It's all of these other factors that are coming into play. So I definitely appreciate, you know, your, your, those three points that you had just made. Um, one of the points that you had mentioned was, you know, growing up in your household, right? And if your parents maybe were chronic dieters or really big into exercise, um, you know, how do we, if we are in a space of struggling with food today, how do you think we try to trace any of that back to that point in time in our lives? That's a great question. A lot of times I'll have clients create a timeline from as far back as they can remember until the current time and current age of all of the memories they have around food or body or weight. So if you remember at six years old that your grandmother told you that your belly looked a little bit too big, that's going on the timeline. If you remember at the age of 14 when you 
binged for the first time, that's going on the timeline. If you remember at the age of 18, when you went to college and you gained 15 pounds freshman year and everyone was shaming you for the quote unquote freshman 15, and that was a really you know shameful experience for you. So then you started restricting your food. That's going on the timeline. If you remember at age 25, when you know your mom asked you to do Weight Watchers with her, that's going on the timeline. Mm, yeah, I love that exercise. It really gets, it really brings intention to thinking about how our past, whether we acknowledged it in the moment or not, influenced our perceptions and beliefs about food. And I think that can be said about, you know, any sort of value or belief system, right? When we were children, all of these things were just told, this is what you need to believe. And I think when we enter into adulthood, not enough individuals engage in this reflective process of what are my beliefs versus what are the beliefs that were instilled, instilled upon me when I was a child, right? And so I think coming back to this point too of, you know, if you find yourself struggling with food, chances are it might be somewhere on your timeline leading up to today. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really insightful process. And a lot of times clients will tell me that they haven't thought about these specific memories in a long, long time. And now that they can all see it laid out in front of them, it makes so much sense that they are in the place that they are now with food. So it's a really helpful reflective process. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like, I'm just even thinking back to my own experience too. And whenever I was able to like have tangible things like that, my brain was like, oh, that makes sense. And I feel like that's what my brain just like craved was any sort of like legitimacy or being able to pinpoint, okay, this is why this happened to me. And I think what my, what I did not do well with was that uncertainty of like, why is this happening to me? Like, I feel so out of control. I don't know what caused this. And I wasn't able to figure that out until I was, you know, well into a grounded place in my own recovery, right? Like, I feel like it's so hard to have enough mental capacity to reflectively think about these things, right? But when you're kind of out of that space, it makes the process so much easier. So once again, my mind is going back to, wow, how powerful would this have been if I would have had these tools as I was really struggling with my eating disorder and even entering into that place of recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, Eric, I totally relate to that. I also think it's important to note that if you are someone who is struggling with more of a restrictive eating disorder, you're likely undernourished. And so you really don't have the mental capability of, you know, wrapping your head around the more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like logical or? Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to be logical in recovery when your body and brain are so undernourished because your body is focused on survival. It's not focused on reflecting on the past 15 years and what led you up to this point, right? So it's important to note that sometimes in recovery, you truly don't have the mental or emotional capacity to be doing that kind of therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So true. And I think... I remember I try to think back all the time to what what my actual experience was for the three and a half years that I lived with my eating disorder. And I don't remember much. Those are three and a half years of my life that are just a blur. Like I can't really recollect anything 
that happened outside of the emotional and psychological things that I was experiencing during that time. Um, and so I think your point right there very much so speaks to, you know, in my own reflecting process too, of like, it makes sense now why I don't really remember and why, you know, I felt like I was in survival mode for those three and a half years. So yeah, I want to start to shift gears a little bit, but we had talked about earlier, you know, how shifting the way we talk about food can help us develop a healthier relationship with food. So how else can individuals begin to heal their relationship with food? Outside of shifting language and making sure that you are talking to yourself in a more positive way about food, the next step would be pairing that with action, allowing yourself to actually eat those quote-unquote off-limits or bad foods, and truly leaning into what we call unconditional permission to eat, allowing yourself to eat all of the foods that you have previously restricted from yourself. And this can happen in a more strategic way, which is why it's helpful to work with a therapist or a dietitian or a recovery coach, because if you're trying to do it alone, it can feel really overwhelming, and it can feel like the floodgates have opened, and it can feel like a very chaotic experience. So there is a strategic way to go about reincorporating all of those off-limits foods, but really leaning into the idea that there are no foods that are off-limits for you, unless, of course, you have food allergies or medical conditions. But there are truly no foods that you are not allowed to eat. And so pairing that with action and allowing yourself to eat those foods, ma managing your thoughts along the way, leaning into coping tools for the anxiety that's going to come up with that process is really, really important. Yeah. A, a question I have now that we're kind of talking about this too is when I was in my own recovery, you know, adding these foods back into my diet was quite scary. Um, and I know that it resulted in, you know, some binge episodes followed by restricting. Um, and so I'm curious, what are some other things that you might see from clients or what might happen in general as we begin to allow these foods back into our diet? Yeah. So exactly what you're saying is a really common experience, feeling a little bit more out of control around those foods, because what happens when you restrict a food or you put it on that quote unquote bad list is that you crave it more or you want it more. And then when you allow yourself to have it, you might feel very out of control around it because you haven't had it in a while. Maybe it tastes amazing to you. Um, and maybe you feel like in the back of your mind, it's going to go away again soon, or you're not going to be allowed to have it again eventually. So you want to get as much in as you possibly can. So that's a, a very common experience. Another really common experience is more of the emotional and mental side of it in that you might be feeling a lot more anxiety you might be feeling a lot more stress. You might be experiencing a lot more thoughts about food, which, you know, the end goal is to think less about food. But in the acute process of recovery, sometimes you have to think about food more. So you might be thinking, you know, this isn't working. I'm, I'm feeling really out of control around these foods and all, I, I can't stop thinking about it. But you have to go through the process of exposure therapy. You have to go through that process over and over and over and over again in order to send the message to your brain that this food isn't going anywhere, it's safe to eat this food, and you can feel peaceful around this food. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what are some things that you, you know, try to help your clients with, with regards to like coping strategies when they find themselves kind of in this heightened or elevated state once they are engaging in this exposure therapy, if you want to call it that? Sure. Yeah. So we do a lot of somatic therapy um, in our sessions. So a lot of breath work, a lot of grounding skills, um, a lot of, um, you know, thought reframing. So it's a really, really cool process. I'm a big proponent of meditation and breath work. So those are two of the things that I focus on mostly with my clients because I truly believe that they are so transformational once they're a part of your daily routine. But really working with the client to establish a toolbox of tools that works specifically for them. So there's, you know, not everyone's going to love meditation, not everyone's going to love breath work, but there are tons of tools that you can use, such as something as small as running your hands underwater or holding ice or, you know, calling a safe person. Those things are, they sound small, but over time, they're huge. Yeah, I feel like I resonate with it a lot. And I think the more that we can become embodied, right, which is that whole concept of somatics and really tuning in to your body's experiences like smell, like touch, a lot like the five senses, right? I truly believe that if we can come back to what our body is experiencing and just those sensations versus paying attention to what's going on up in here, that's what helps us become more grounded in those experiences with food. So I am very, you know, like I said, I just really resonate with that topic of somatics because I truly also believe that, you know, when we are experiencing any sort of struggle with food and or body image, we become so fixated on the active mind and all of the thoughts running around. And it really, you know, our daily experience is from the neck up. We aren't living life neck down, right? And neck down is where life happens. When we feel connected to our heart, when we feel connected to our entire body, but when we are in the depths of struggling, we just sever that connection between body and mind. And we don't know how to necessarily engage in things outside of our mind. We don't have the tools. We don't have anything to help us maneuver those more intense experiences. That is so funny, Eric. I say that to my clients all the time. I always tell them that healing happens from, from the neck down and that we can try to reframe thoughts. We can try to be as reflective and, and logical as possible. But if you're not connected with what's happening neck down, it's going to be so much harder for you. Yeah, that's so true. And I think, you know, the more we can just learn to trust as well. I think trust is another large component of doing any sort of work on ourselves in this space is that we really need to learn to trust our hearts, to trust the physiological cues that our body gives us on a daily basis. And without also building that trust, none of this work can really happen, right? Yeah. I think trust and awareness and curiosity are three of the best tools that you can bring to your recovery process. Mm -hmm. How do we get into that space of curiosity? 
instead of approaching situations with judgment, which is oftentimes what happens, right? If someone, you know, engages in a behavior such as, you know, binging or we'll just use binging, for example, a lot of times it starts with, I can't believe I did that. I'm such, you know, I'm such a bad person for doing that. Um, you know, a lot of shame and a lot of, a lot of judgment, a lot of self-criticism for having that experience. Instead, we want to approach with a sense of curiosity. I wonder why that happened. I wonder what's going on for me emotionally or physically that led me to engage in that behavior. Because instead of staying stuck in the shame, and I equate shame to an anchor, if you're thinking about a boat, I call the anchor shame and compassion is the motor. So if you're approaching with compassion and you're approaching with curiosity, you're going to learn from that experience and take it into future experiences. Instead of say, staying stuck in the cycle of shame and guilt, you're going to be able to learn and move forward. Yes. And that really reminds me of something that I've been working on with my own personal therapist and, you know, both in and outside of the place of eating is that like, pause, then respond, right? Where it's, once again, we keep circling back to this awareness component, right? Where it's really in that place of curiosity where you begin to reflect on, you know, why am I engaging in this? Maybe what needs of mine aren't being met in the current moment that I'm now resorting to food to help me cope with whatever needs aren't being met. And so that really just reminds me of that pause and reflect. And then also taking mental note of, okay, this is how I felt when I felt like I needed to, you know, maybe have a binge episode. Um, and because it's with that awareness the next time, very much so, like you said, that you experience it, you're able to pause and respond differently. And it's in the pause that we really learn to, you know, align with our true self, not the self that is struggling with food and or eating. Exactly. Exactly. And every time you respond differently to a trigger or a stimulus, you are creating different pathways in your brain. You're literally changing the structure and the function of your brain to make that the norm, the, the, you know, the healthy adaptive coping tools, make that the norm, make that the instinct rather than the maladaptive coping tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another question I have for you is, you know, if you could say anything to anyone out there who is struggling with food, with eating, with body image, what words of advice or what words of encouragement would you be wanting to give them? Healing is not linear. This is a huge theme in my sessions with clients right now. A lot of frustration about having a slip or you know, having a little bit of a setback and feeling a little bit unmotivated or feeling more challenged on the recovery journey. But healing is not linear. You don't get a little bit better every single day. There are going to be things that, you know, create chaos or create barriers in your recovery process, but that doesn't mean that you're not still moving forward. So don't expect healing to be straightforward. Don't expect healing to be you know, going up in a straight line, it's going to be a very squiggly, chaotic process of, of healing. And that is so normal. And the more that you stay engaged with recovery, the more that you stay engaged with treatment, 
the higher your chances are at recovery. Yeah, I had just done another podcast interview last week and the guest had said something along the same lines that you did here. But one thing that she also added that I just want to bring back because I thought it was really powerful when we're talking about this space of recovery and the fact that it's not a linear process and fear of these setbacks and how it might put us back into that space of really struggling is, you know, once again, taking the moment to pause, if you have the ability to zoom out and think, you know, these setbacks are actually going to help me grow even more in my recovery. Because if I don't experience these things anywhere in my recovery journey, how am I going to know how to respond once I feel like I'm in a grounded place, right? So it's once again, that reshifting of thoughts, right? Of like, oh my gosh, I had a really bad day to, okay, it can be the both and. Yes, I had a bad day, but I can also take what I learned from this bad day to help me grow even more in this recovery process. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you have to cut off something from from a plan in order to get new growth. So think about it that way. And uh, I think that's a really beautiful sentiment that you just shared. So the title of this podcast is Embracing You. So how has your own journey of living with disordered eating and the work that you do today allow you to embrace yourself? I have learned so much about myself through the recovery process. I always say that intuitive eating leads you to intuitive living. And I feel like through the recovery process, you really get to know yourself on a deeper level without using food or, you know, having control over your body as, as your identity almost. And you get to peel back the layers and say, okay, what was that covering up? And what do I want to bring forward? What do I want to step into? And I truly believe that if I have not if I had not healed my relationship with food, if I had not healed my relationship with my body, I would not be a successful business owner today because I would have a completely different identity that was wrapped up in things that were not having an impact on other people. And it was really just kind of living in my bubble of what am I eating today? How am I exercising today? Um, and now my brain space has opened up so much more. Um, and now I can actually do work that I love to do and help others get their lives back. Yeah, I am also a firm believer too that, you know, the road to recovery and being in recovery is, you know, the road to your true self. And it's such a beautiful journey, like you had mentioned too, of the imagery I really like that you presented here of like peeling back the layers, right? I feel like when we really are struggling in that space, we have this shield up where we only have ourselves be seen as you know, someone who is in this type of body, someone who engages in this type of exercise, and we let that define who we are. But it's in that process of unlearning where very much like you had just said, we begin to peel back the layers and become connected to that heart space. And it's in that heart space that we find our true selves. And then that helps connect both, you know, body and mind to one another. So I just like, once again, that was such a beautiful explanation and answer to that question of, you know, how does this sort of work help you begin to embrace yourself? And it's really that road back or road to that authentic version of you outside of these other identifiers. So Kate, if people are looking to learn a little bit more about you, how can people find you? 
You can follow me on either Instagram or TikTok. My handle is Wholesome Chick Nutrition. Or you can go to my website, wholesomechicknutrition.com. Wonderful. I will be sure to include um, both those links or the links to your social platforms and then the link to your website in the show notes for those that are listening. Um, But Kate, I want to thank you so much for all of your time, your words of expertise and wisdom that you were able to share with listeners today. Um, It always feels so refreshing and invigorating to engage in conversation with people in this space because it's like, they get it, they get it. Um, And so I just want to thank you so much for everything that you were able to share with us today. Of course, this was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to give a big thank you to Kate Regan for being a guest on today's episode. I don't know about you all, but I am definitely taking some wonderful nuggets with me after leaving that conversation with her. So until next time, I hope that you all continue to take care of yourselves. You remember to pause before you respond. And most importantly, I hope you continue to give yourself some love and self-compassion because you're worth it. Much love.